You are connected, and you are listening to Specifically for Seniors, the podcast for those in the Remember When generation. Today's podcast is available everywhere you listen to podcasts and with video at Specifically for Seniors YouTube channel. Now, here's your host, Dr. Larry Barsh. Today, on Specifically for Seniors, we're going to do something just a bit different. We have three guests who are here to tell you three completely different stories about parts of their lives. You've met two of them on previous podcasts, but they didn't have the time to tell you the rest of their stories. The third is new to specifically for seniors, but it's the story of a part of American history that our generation cannot forget. So make yourself a cup of coffee, sit back, relax, and let these three men tell you about a part of each of their lives. And welcome to Specifically for Seniors. Those of you who are regular listeners to Specifically for Seniors will recall Alastair Henry from our May 2023 podcast. Alastair retired at 57, shed his possessions, and went to live with the First Nations Band in the Northwest Territory, then left Canada's North to volunteer working with local NGOs, those are nonprofit organizations, in Bangladesh. He and his wife enjoyed budget pack packing for four months at a time in Central America and Southeast Asia in their 60s. In 2020, Alistair endured a double lung transplant. Alistair is back today to talk about the transplant and the work he is now doing as a Trillium Gift of Life advocate. Welcome back to Specifically for Seniors, Alistair. Thank you, Larry. Good morning. Do you want to tell us the background story of the transplant? What led up to it? Yeah. It was Christmas 2019. I was 74 years of age and I was having trouble breathing. I'd been a smoker all my life, pack a day, and I wasn't really too surprised. I was expecting at some point in life that uh, the cigarettes would get me, the, the addiction. I tried many times and I just resolved to, you know, say, okay, well, this is going to be my demise, you know. Anyway, it was about uh, January 2019. Yeah, January 2019. I had trouble breathing. It was really bad. I felt like I was sucking through a straw. So I went to my doctor, saw a respirologist, and I was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, not, not lung cancer. But that, that's bad. That's got a high, high morbidity of 
three to six years. So I said, well, what have I got? Have I got three years or six years? And they said, well, unfortunately, your fibrosis is quite advanced. You're looking at about 18 months. They put me on oxygen immediately. So five liters a minute. And, uh, you know, so obviously that was a, and then I realized, you know, we all have to die sometime. We're all going to die sometime. But that gave me a best before date of about June 2020, 18 months to do whatever I needed to do. And, uh, and I was okay with that because I, you know, I wasn't like 55. I, w I was 74. So I accepted that. Um, went on the oxygen 24-7. So I was carting this little oxygen cart around wherever I went. Had a unit in the bedroom set up generating oxygen because I had to sleep with the canola up my nose. And I had to go and lose a few, no, and, and but before that. Okay, and then I looked at everything and I thought, okay, what's on my bucket list that really is the only thing that is important? And it was to go back to England, to say goodbye to my sister, my nephews and nieces and friends one last time. And so I did that in August 2019. I went to England with my wife three children, three of my grandchildren, and we had a big party. Some of my nephews and nieces came in from London, France, and there was about 25 of us at this restaurant. And it was a wonderful, joyous occasion. You know, I was just celebrating my life, and uh, I wasn't negative about it at all because I just figured, you know, I'd had a good life. And, uh, man, I did last you know, I was 74. Anyway, I came back to Canada and realized that my fibrosis was progressing because I had to go from five liters of oxygen a minute to seven, to eight, to 10, to 12. So come around Christmas time, I was um, just coming to grips with everything, you know, thinking, okay, this is the last Thanksgiving, my last Christmas, last birthdays, Last time I'd see these friends and the last of everything, and I was okay with that. I had a sort of Buddhist mentality, Larry, that let me accept what is unconditionally. I wasn't angry, regretful, or looking to blame. I just accepted it, and my wife did too. We just accepted that uh, this was our time, you know? I figured there's a lot of people going to die before me, but they don't know it yet. So I was fortunate in that I knew and I could prepare. And I could gauge it because of my uh, increase in my oxygen intake, you know. Anyway, it was about Christmas when my children said, Dad, how about a lung transplant? And I said, you've got to be joking. At my age, a lung transplant? There's no way. And my doctor hadn't mentioned it. So I, I tackled him about it. I said, what about a lung transplant? Is that possible? And he said, well, usually after the age of 70, you know, people got diabetes, high cholesterol, heart problems. But I got checked out and I was in perfect health. Other than the fibrosis, I had to lose a little weight. So I had to go to physio for a couple of months. 
to get my body mass index, you know, down to a certain level. But anyway, I went on the wait list in June 2020. And uh, after three false calls to zip up, because you've got to, I was fortunate that I live in London, Ontario, just two hours away from the Toronto General Hospital, which is the hospital in Canada, in Ontario, that does the lung transplants. If I'd have lived further away, I would have had to have gone and lived in Toronto because you need to be within two hours for the operation. So anyway, I zipped up the highway going in there, but that was weird because I'm thinking, you know, uh, I may not get off the uh, operating table, right? You know, I don't know, 5% don't. And I thought, well, at my age, there may be complications. But I was okay with that because I figured I'm going to die anyway, you know. Because that's what my children said when they they said about the lung transplants. And I said, oh, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, it's highly invasive and it's very dangerous. I might die on the operating table. And when they said, well, you're going to die anyway, Dad, that was the turning point. That's when I decided, oh, I'm going to have the, I'm going to go for the lung transplant. Anyway, cut long story short, story short, Larry, September 3rd, 2020, I had went into the operating room, came out with these new lungs. So that's over three years ago now, and uh, they've been wonderful. What was your recovery like? Must have been tough. No, it was, no, it blows my mind. I went into ICU for two days because you got all these tubes all these drain tubes sticking out of your ribs because they go into your body cavities to get rid of all the fluids and stuff, you know? Because the lungs are, um, they're encased in a pleura. So they go in and it's separate than the rest of your body. So the rest of your body is, because they break your, they snap your um, sternum. Yeah, they push that back, they take your lungs out cut them all off, put the new lungs in, sew the bronchus up and everything, you know, put it all back, stitch right across. So I was in ICU for two days, and then what they call step down, which is uh, like a halfway house, <laughs> just uh, to help you continue your recovery. And then after eight days, they discharged me. And they said, no, hospitals are for sick people. You're not sick. And I said, I'm not. I said, no. And you're healthier at home because the hospital's full of bugs, all sorts of people here with viruses and bacteria. Oh, sooner you get home, the safer you'll be. It's not weird. Anyway. You make it sound like a car repair. <laughs> well, it was in a way, you know. I, I, I just had one little wrinkle and that was um, a problem. Uh, every three months, I had to go in for a bronchoscopy for the first three months. Bronchoscopy is where they go right into your lungs, take out a couple of little snippets, tissue. I think they take 10 samples just to ensure that the body isn't rejecting or there's no infection. And uh, when they went in, there was a little bit of a problem. They, they nipped the pleura, which caused one lung to collapse. It's called uh, pneumothorax. Anyway, I went back in and everything's fine. So that was three years ago in 
I'm in perfect health since. The other thing is back in 2006, I'm a writer, huh? as you know. I started writing a book in 2016, um, a historical fiction romance novel, largely based upon early memories of growing up in England because the world has changed so much and I wanted to use all of this uh, strong characters and, uh, you know, there were um, World War II vets wandering around Bolton with PTSD. As if there were no mental health or help back in those days, you know. They all lived at the Salvation Army. They got turned out in the morning and said, you know, come back for supper, but we don't want to see you for the rest of the day. So they wandered around Bolton and... Uh, and they were scary because they had all these weird, some mumbled to themselves, some shouted, and some were angry. And and as kids, you know, we were really scared stiff of them. We'd, and, and even adults, we'd cross the road rather than, you know, confront them. Anyway, I had all these images in my mind. And I wanted to write a book incorporating all of that, plus the home children. I became aware that Canada shipped to 120,000 children under the age of 14 to Canada without their consent. They were orphans because Canada had a labor shortage. So these kids came to work as uh, on the farms as laborers and as domestics because nobody cared. They didn't have any parents. So it was a whole scheme they put together between the British and Canadian governments and the orphanages and homes in Canada. And uh, it was uh, it was diabolical. But in in the history classes in Canada, they didn't teach about that. They didn't teach about the residential school problem or the uh, Chinese uh, head tax. You know, that's it. They try to rewrite history and say, oh, yeah, the colonial, you know, it was wonderful. Anyway, I wanted to make people aware because a lot, most people aren't aware. And these kids were, um, they were indentured to their employer, the farmer or the homeowner. You see all these great big homes in Canada. Well, who looked after the babies? Who cooked, cleaned? You know, who cleaned the woodwork? Who cleaned out the fireplace? It was little eight, nine-year-old girls, domestics from England, terrible. And they weren't treated as human beings, you know, they were, it was terrible. Anyway, so I started to write this story, but I stopped writing because, well, what's the point? I hadn't finished writing and I thought, you know, uh, I might as well just uh, focus my attention now on the last 18 months of my life. And, forget about the book. Anyway, with the new gift of life, I began writing again. And I finished the book. And so now it's available. So I brought it into existence. And that's one of the wonderful things I did with my gift of life. And now I'm talking to you too, about everything. And that was one of the gifts. And your other gift is working as a trillium gift of life advocate. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, you know, as I said, Larry, I told you a little earlier, I was very lucky. Every three days, somebody on the wait list 
dies. There's just not enough organs being donated. And people, you have to register to be a donor, in, in Ontario anyway. In other parts of the world, no, it's mandatory. You have to opt out. But in Ontario, you have to actually register. And it's sad. And I just feel that uh, I was so fortunate that at my age, you know, I, uh, the lungs became available and I got them. So it's, it's a way to give back. So I tell people my story because I say, you know, had my donor not registered as a donor, I, I wouldn't be here. I mean, I'm breathing through his lungs. And this is what people don't realize. The lungs will never be mine. They're, they're a different DNA. They've been inserted in me, and I'm taking medications to make sure my immune system doesn't reject them. But, oh, man, could you imagine how grateful I am? Every day, every breath, I'm breathing through these lungs. So what I do is I advocate. I tell people, and I encourage them to sign the, you know, the organ and donor register. And I, I do things. I have this little gift of life um, PowerPoint presentation I give to community centers, uh, retire, well, whatever, wherever I can. And uh, I'm part of the team with Toronto General Hospital to, to put this presentation to schools. This is for children in uh, grade 12 because uh, it's the young people that haven't registered. I mean, they don't think they're going to die, right? So, and a lot of superstition. They think, well, I don't want to tempt death, you know. There is, there's a lot of uh, people say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. And uh, so, you know, we miss out. Alistair, thank you for sharing your story. It's inspiring. Um, I hope people who listen to this will sign up for an organ donation registry here in the States as well. Thank you again for coming on specifically for seniors and telling us this part of your story. Thank you, Larry. It was a pleasure. On November 22nd, 1963, a 26-year-old junior duty officer was on duty at Bethesda Naval Hospital when the casket containing the body of Jack Fitzgerald Kennedy arrived from Dallas. You met that naval officer on this podcast on May 3rd, 2023. Sorrel Schwartz today is a professor emeritus of pharmacology at Georgetown University Medical Center and Senior Pharmacology Advisor at the FDA. Sorrell is with us today as we near the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination. Welcome back, Sorrell. I'm glad to be here. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm glad to be here. Sorrell, take us back to that evening 60 years ago. What were you doing? when you were advised that JFK had been assassinated? Uh, what I was doing, I, I was at the um, 
Naval Station by, uh, at the Naval Medical Research Institute in Bethesda. Uh, just a little clarification, uh, the National Naval Medical Center, uh, which is now the Walter Reed uh, Military Medical Center, the National Naval Medical Center uh, was comprised of component commands, uh, uh, one of which the major one is the Bethesda Naval Hospital, uh, another of which is the um, U.S. Naval Medical Research Institute. Uh, I was a, uh, I actually had just been uh, commissioned in, in the Navy for uh, three months. Uh, and one of my collateral duties outside of being a, uh, uh, a laboratory investigator uh, was to, as all uh, officers have at one time or another, uh, it's called the duty watch, uh, where uh, in the off hours you have the duty of making uh, making sure that the place doesn't fall apart, uh, and this for the whole for the whole medical center. So uh, during the day, I was in my in my lab. I was informed uh, by a colleague about the assassination uh, or or the attempted assassination at that time. Uh, and then we were all together in uh, my department director's office as we listened uh, and, and finally heard uh, that, that he had died. Um, later that day, uh, about five o'clock in the afternoon, I did not have, I was not assigned uh, and the duty watch uh, for that day. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, but uh, I was waiting for my wife to pick me up. I'm going to take me home. And um, I got a, a message from uh, the duty watch at the Naval Medical Research Institute that uh, they needed someone to add on to as a duty officer for the day because they're bringing Kennedy's body there. So I ended up um, uh, joining the other duty officer. Uh, one thing I learned uh, in my 30 days of indoctrination commissioned is that have the duty when you have the duty watch you have pretty much you're put pretty much in charge of things so you can imagine that uh, with the president's body being brought there for autopsy uh, there would be a lot of grass there and there was a lot of grass there enough to start a scrapyard but uh, they had uh, uh, they had just their uh, their own responsibilities, uh, and uh, the other duty officer had the responsibility of uh, just making sure that things flowed right. Um, interestingly, and this is a rather important point, is that uh, we had uh, very little specific information. We knew that the president's body was being brought to Bethesda for autopsy. Uh, an ambulance had been sent out to Andrews Air Force Base, uh, not for the specific purpose of, of uh, bringing his body back, uh, but just for the, sp the purpose of anybody on board Air Force One who might have needed some type of emergency medical care. And, uh, and so uh, I kept on getting calls from the uh, administrative officer. The administrative officer of the uh, medical center uh, is like uh, is like the COO. The commanding officer is this CEO, and the administrative officer is like the COO. 
and he was asking me if I knew how the uh, president's body was being brought uh, to Bethesda. And I, I told him that we were assuming it's going to be brought by helicopter because any time the president comes in uh, for physical exam or something like that, that uh, they come in by helicopter. And this wasn't for physical exam, obviously, but we thought it was going to be, it was going to be come by uh, helicopter. So we had the heliport ready. Uh, but uh, we couldn't get any information. The Secret Service person who was at Bethesda uh, could give me no information because he had no information and they didn't have all the you know fancy communications like they have now. Uh, so uh, I turned on the office television set and uh, uh, and as I turned it, as the picture came up literally, uh, they were loading the casket onto that Navy ambulance and so I now knew how the um, how the uh, casket was coming, and um, I I phoned up to the administrative officer to tell him that the casket was coming by ambulance. He says, "How did you know? Who told you?" And I said, "I saw it on television." <laughs> so uh, that that's somewhat of ironic. Um, uh, when when uh, the ambulance arrived, which is about uh, it's about a half hour uh, drive from Andrews Air Force Base, uh, uh, in the um, uh, in the ambulance were um, uh, Mrs. Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy, and Robert Kennedy, uh, and um, a couple of other people who were uh, who were obviously seeking. Secret Service agents. Um, we were um, we had a very large crowd on the base. People had found out in the, by radio, obviously or television, that they were bringing the president's body to to uh, Bethesda, uh, and so uh, we had well over a couple of thousand people on the uh, uh, on the base. And the security wasn't like it is today. I mean, you could go on and off the base at will. Uh, Today that would never happen, but um, they. Uh, uh, so we had we didn't have a large crowd control problem, uh, mainly just to keep them out of people's way. But we didn't have any concerns about uh, behavior or anything like that. Uh, Mrs. When Mrs. Kennedy uh, got out of the um, got out of the ambulance. Uh, Walking uh, toward the entrance to the uh, to the hospital, and I was about uh, six eight feet from her, walking walking backwards, and the whole the whole purpose of which was to uh, make sure that nobody ran uh, stood in front of her to take a picture. Uh, they just wanted uh, went a lot of press bothering her. Well, in fact, um, there were there was very little press in. in uh, in fact, I, I I saw just one person who identified it as a press photographer. Other than that, uh, it's not like it would be today with cable television. You, you'd probably have like, dozens of reporters and cameras around, but there there was no press, literally no press there, and that's worn out by the fact that um, uh, there's there's very uh, there's very little, if any, photographic evidence of what went on with Bethesda. 
Mrs. Kennedy uh, was still wearing the um, uh, magenta or strawberry colored uh, suit in uh, her suit where the uh, president's head would have been in her lap was it was stained with blood uh, and uh, but her stockings were uh, almost stiff with dried blood on them uh, so she had obviously clearly was in, in this traumatic, uh, in the middle of this traumatic uh, 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 attack on, on her husband. Uh, she was, uh, I mean, she was well controlled. I mean, she had a stoic smile on her face, but uh, uh, there was, um, I mean, there, there was no outward signs of uh, disturbance. She didn't have to see it to know it was there. Um, then, um, what happened after this is uh, sort of um, what has complicated some things. Uh, we um, we had a a guard a guard truck. It's, it's uh, you know it was like a, a, a you know a semi truck, and and that uh, uh, the other duty officer and I, and then the uh, military uh, uh, the military honor guard. Which is uh, made up of um, uh, members of uh, the the four services, uh, Air Force, um, uh, Navy, Marines, and uh, they were on the back of the truck. I was sort of I was on the uh, running board, and uh, I, um, I Department of Defense guard was driving, and the other duty officers inside, uh, and we rushed uh, to. Uh, Get the um, to get the coffin uh, to the morgue and unloaded before. Uh, again, we didn't know really if how much press was there, uh, and we did not want a lot of um, press coverage on just moving a coffin and so forth. It just was, um, you know, it was just a matter of a uh, taste. Even today. Uh, there's a limitation in how much uh, they allow of unloading service, seeing men, servicemen who have been killed in battle unloaded uh, uh, from uh, transports. Let me uh, let me take you back just one step before we go any further. There was uh, an interesting story you told about setting up the perimeter and something about a rope. Oh well. Oh yes. Well, we 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 had uh, taken a rope, which is um, uh, a fairly uh, fairly dirty because it had been on the back of the truck, and uh, and we used it just to uh, uh, rope off an area so that if people came around back there, that uh, it just showed where they had to stand. So uh, so we roped off this perimeter. Uh, and uh, you may be, you may be referring to what I recall that um, uh, at the time the the uh, uniform of the day that I had is called dress blues, uh, which are which are black, um, had uh, the wearing of gray gloves and but the rope was so dirty I uh, I just didn't I took my gloves off I would have ruined them. Uh, and then when the guard, honor guard was unloading the casket, um, 
I stood at attention and saluted. And uh, I just glanced up and, and saw my hand, which is absolutely covered black with dirt from having handled the, the rope. And for some reason, I, I, I had this, um, this uh, thought that uh, here I am uh, on this awful day and I'm saluting the president and my hand is dirty. My hands, I should have clean hands saluting the president. That's, that's the type of thing that runs through your mind at, at those times. But um, I, I think that's what you were, yeah. what you were referring to. I thought that was a very uh, touching part of the story. Well, it uh, I, it's something I re, I remember. I, you know, in in all of these things, that you, you, no matter this is sixty years ago, but uh, you know there there are 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 two images that still are really burned into my mind. One was Mrs. Kennedy uh, in her uh, blood-stained outfit, uh, and the other was my hand, which was so dirty. Uh, I mean, that, 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 those the images I carry from from uh, from that day. I can still see my hand uh, and how dirty it was. Um, but before before that, um, uh, there was an issue before when we first got to the morgue. Um, we were there. And the ambulance was supposed to be behind us, but it wasn't. And uh, uh, two cars were behind us. One was the um, uh, President's Air Force uh, military aide, General McHugh. And the other was the Commandant of the Military Army Commandant of the Military District of Washington, uh, General, I think as well. Um, if, I, if I recall his name, uh, and we uh, we didn't know what happened, where the where the ambulance was, uh, and uh, uh, so we almost got into a little bit of trouble because General McHugh uh, was uh, uh, somewhat um, uh, uh, touchy that night. Um, uh, asked us if we knew what the hell we were doing. And uh, we gave a response, which is not the response, is not the type of response that a junior officer gives a general officer. And um, so he was, he was getting out, uh, General McHugh was getting out, uh, about, to, about to say, who do you think you're talking to? Uh, uh, but he didn't quite finish it because uh, General Well, I think that was his name, uh, who outranked him by one star, uh, said, hey, General, uh, let them do their job. And so we we probably uh, escaped getting put on report or some other type of disciplinary action because uh, he was quite annoyed with us. And what had happened was uh, at at the at Andrews, the uh, the Navy driver of the ambulance was replaced by uh, a Secret Service driver, and uh, so by the when we said that we were going to go to the morgue, uh, I 
truck took off, the two generals' cars took off, uh, and um, the ambulance didn't take off because uh, there was a crowd around it, and he didn't know the way to the morgue. Uh, so we came back and we did this. Uh, I, I, I did this all over again. Uh, during the during the time when we were trying to find out what happened, I had made a comment uh, that um, uh, I can't believe we've lost the body of the president. Uh, and you know the guard, you know everybody chuckled. Then then uh, we realized, okay, the, no time for gallows humor. But um, that turned out to be. Uh, uh, something more significant than just a, a comment because um, what what transpired in the uh, subsequent years in uh, uh, in 1981 a, a book published by David Lifton called the best evidence uh, in which um, uh, it's claimed that uh, there were actually two caskets brought to Bethesda uh, and um, one had been surreptitiously uh, con had contained the body of the president, had surreptitiously been taken somewhere uh, in order for, um, as he called them, surgeons to uh, make adjustments in the uh, president's head uh, to uh, coincide with a theory of, uh, uh, of uh, where the uh, attackers were. Over the where the uh, uh, alleged more than one uh, assassins were, um, this uh, this even to today you can do it see it on the internet. Uh, there's still this discussion going on. Uh, what bothers me is one of the reasons I'm sort of um, willing to to do this interview is that. Um, you know, 60 years ago, I probably, well, not probably, I'm sure I'm one of the few living survivors of uh, of the time there. Uh, having been a witness to what went on, uh, I know I knew that all of this business about a conspiracy is uh, uh, to uh, uh, to modify the president's body and so forth was just uh, was just. Uh, a lot of BS. Uh, I told you that the um, that uh, the administrative officer uh, repeatedly called me to ask me what's happening when where is the um, uh, where when is the body arriving and so forth. Uh, if there was some other uh, something else going on where a body was being brought to a back gate, as was alleged. Uh, and um, and all of these machinations, uh, the administrative officer wouldn't have been calling me to find out what's happening. He would have known well what's happening since he was in charge of running everything. So, um, but um, uh, the farther we get, the farther we get away from that date, the um, uh, farther we get away from. Uh, uh, the um, uh, also the, the truth about what happened on that date, and like I say, there's if you look at all the documentaries on that have been made on the 
Kennedy assassination. There's nothing about what went on in Bethesda. Uh, but there's plenty of what went on about Bethesda, in Bethesda uh, by people who weren't there. Uh, the, the, the one accurate description of what uh, went on when we, when we had lost the body, when, we didn't, when the ambulance didn't follow us to the morgue, was in William Ch Manchester's book, The Death of a President, where he, uh, uh, he very accurately described what went on uh, while we were trying to figure out where the ambulance was. And uh, he had gotten that from interviewing uh, the Army's uh, the, the first lieutenant, who was the Army officer in charge of the uh, Honor Guard. Uh, that was his representation was uh, was accurate, uh, but that that was also used uh, uh, by some as a as a primary reference to show that uh, there was a, a, a there was a mix up or or, or, or there was an intended uh, mixing up of ambulances and so forth, but. Um, like I say, I was there. I know exactly what was happening because I was part of it. When did the reality of the whole day hit you? That's a that's a that's a good question. <laughs> um, it's funny that um, you know you're, you're you're in the midst of all of this, and um, uh, you know you're just not you're, you're just not thinking about the fact. The president of the United States was assassinated. And you're, what you're trying to do is to make sure that uh, everything is running smoothly. Uh, and you're getting a first uh, a first hand lesson on the on the responsibilities of duty officers. Uh, because I was brought on uh, as a as a second thought, so to speak. Uh, I didn't have to do what the other duty officer had to do was to stay there overnight. So. After everything was all calm and all the people had left, um, I was able to go home. And I woke up the next morning, um, and and then it just all of a sudden I was thinking about being all, all a part of this, and um, my mind had convinced me that I had. I had just had some sort of a nightmare, but on the other hand, there were too many little details that that were were quite um, uh, were quite clear. So uh, my my wife is still sleeping, um, uh, and um, I got out of bed and I went to the, the uh, door of the apartment and I opened up the door of the apartment. And uh, there it was laying open the uh, Washington Post, um, and I looked down and you know, and, and, you know, saw his picture, and, and I remembered 1917 to 1963 under the uh, uh, under his name. Uh, then, um, as I said before, that um, I was correct. I had had a nightmare, but it wasn't the kind you wake up from. Um, but that that was an interesting question about when I when it struck me because actually up until that time I had I had not processed that 
that we had a new president, that our president had been murdered, uh, that I had been involved in in the in the process of of uh, of helping Mrs. Kennedy, of uh, getting them, of of, of getting the the, the, the uh, casket to the morgue, all of that stuff. Just it just it, you know it was um, it, it was that moment that I I, I just had to realize, uh, and, it, and it took me a while, really, to, uh, to realize uh, this. And I thought that, um, I mean, I had, strangely enough, exactly one month earlier, uh, been at the National Academy of Sciences, where he, he gave the uh, 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 principal address the uh, 100th anniversary of the National Academy of Sciences. So I had seen him, uh, it's the only time I'd ever seen him. Uh, he made that, uh, when he gave that speech, uh, uh, exactly, I'm pretty sure it was exactly one month earlier. Sorrel, thank you for coming on. This is a part of history we don't hear about. Yeah, it's it's it, it. I have to tell you, every time I've I, I have uh, in preparing my thoughts for this interview, um, I, I I went back on the uh, internet on the web and, and looking at all of the conspiracy stuff that was uh, it's there, and it just you know sixty years later, but it's just. It, it, it doesn't anger me, it frightens me. And then I think of, um, you know, our current day talks about, uh, discussion about conspiracy. And um, I think that these things just, these things have a life to them. They just don't seem to die away. Sorrel, thanks again. My, my pleasure, Larry. I, I, I love, I, I, I love your, your podcast and then, uh, and I'm sure that, um, uh, that the audience of this podcast uh, well remembers November 22nd, 1963. Thank you again. Thank you. My third and final guest on today's podcast is Robert Norris. Robert's story is one that many of us who were draft age during the Vietnam War era will have faced in one way or another. Robert is a Pacific Northwest native, Vietnam War conscientious objector who served some time in a military prison and expat resident of Japan since 1983. He's the author of The Good Lord Willing and The Creek Don't Rise, but, but let me let Robert tell you his story. We're talking to Robert from his home in Fukuoka, Fukuoka, Japan. So good evening, Robert. Welcome to Specifically for Seniors. Yeah, thank you, Larry. Thank you for having me on the show. And it's good to see you too. You grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Tell us about your childhood, family life. Well, yeah, uh, I was blessed uh, to be born in a, a beautiful part of the country in the the redwoods of uh, the northern part of California, in Humboldt County, and uh, 
I was born in 1951, and uh, so that makes me 72 years old now. <laughs> and uh, basically, uh, we grew up outside of uh, uh, the town of Arcata, which at that time had a population of about four or 5,000, and we lived uh, on the edge of this redwood forest. So it was really uh, an idyllic uh, childhood, you know, fishing in the local stream for uh, six, eight-inch trout and playing baseball and uh, going for long hikes and uh, just uh, seeing a lot of animals. And it was a wonderful childhood. And uh, maybe, uh, you know, I was uh, like uh, one of those TV show children of the 1950s, you know, Leave it to Beaver, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Opie or one of those, but uh, along came the 1960s, and uh, you know there was trouble everywhere. It seemed like, but uh, still we were hidden away behind the iron, not the iron curtain, the redwood curtain, and sort of uh, oblivious to the outside world. But even so, uh, there were a lot of uh, things, uh, you know, changing even within our part of, of the world. And uh, my mother ended up uh, divorcing my father, and. Uh, so I ended up uh, having to move to a different town and lived with her and, and uh, my stepfather. She got married about a year later and my father also remarried. And so I ended up uh, from the original family. I had one brother and one sister, but after my parents uh, got remarried, we had a whole bunch of new stepbrothers and sisters and all told we had enough to make a baseball team. <laughs> we had nine brothers and sisters. And I would spend the summers with my father in uh, the school year at my mother's place. And uh, well, like any other kid at that time, I was obsessed with baseball and basketball and played a lot of sports and uh, didn't really have too many problems and except uh, watching the TV every night. We were you know, very much aware of the Vietnam War. And so by the time I turned 18, uh, of course, I, I thought the war was, wasn't... Uh, my cup of tea, so to speak, but uh, uh, you know, how do you get out of uh, having to, to go fight in a war in a country that you've probably never heard of before? So at that time, and perhaps I was a bit naive, but uh, the Air Force or, or the Navy seemed like a, a good alternative and the odds of having to go directly to uh, the front line of Vietnam would be heavily reduced. And when I talked to the Air Force recruiter, he promised me the world, you know, I could play basketball all day long and have adventures in different countries around the world and life would be great. And I bought it hook, line and sinker. <laughs> and so maybe on the first or second day of uh, basic training, I, I knew I had made a big mistake and fate intervened. And at the end of basic training, my uh, job assignment was to be a guard for B-52 bombers. And so uh, when I was sent to my first base after receiving a bunch of uh, training and how to use different weapons and so on and so forth, I ended up uh, having to walk around B-52 bombers. And I was sent to a base in California near Sacramento. It was called Beale Air Base. And at that time, there was a lot of uh, underground newspapers that were very critical of the war and, and uh, talking about all the events that were happening there. Uh, the campuses uh, uh, erupting with demonstrations and uh, the, particularly the Milai uh, massacre news uh, came you know, 
It wasn't hidden from us at all. And, and I ended up getting involved with a couple of guys who were working on an underground GI newspaper. And, uh, you know, these short-haired hippies who only had a few months left before they were out of the service uh, had been talking to a lot of the soldiers who had returned from Vietnam and reported their experiences and their thoughts and feelings and opinions. And I was also heavily influenced by the music at the time, you know, music by Bob Dylan and some of his lyrics and Crosby, Stills and Nash and others who were protesting the war. And Kent State was probably the final straw uh, for me. Anyway, shortly after Kent State, I was given my order to uh, go to Vietnam and I took a month off. Uh, we were given 30 days of leave before having to report to a base in Texas for further war training. <clears throat> and uh, in the end, I decided I, I just can't go. So I had probably one of three choices, go to Canada and probably never be able to come back to the States again or uh, refuse my order and, and probably face uh, you know, five years or so in prison. And then, uh, or, you know, just go underground might be another alternative. And so I ended up going back to the base and, uh, you know, I, I was called into my commanding officer's uh, office and given a final order to go. And I, I refused the order. And so I was uh, set to be court-martialed about a month later. And I was 18 years, well, actually 19 years old at, at this time. And uh, at my court-martial, which took about a whole day of deliberation, it all boiled down to how I had responded to that order. And I was facing the military uh, crime of willful disobedience to a direct lawful order, which carried a punishment of five years in prison and, uh, and or not, uh, not undesirable, uh, dishonorable discharge. And I was found not guilty of the original charge, but guilty of a lesser charge, which they called negligent disobedience to a direct lawful order. And the difference being, I never used the word no when I responded to my commanding officer's uh, order. I kept repeating the same sentence, I don't feel I'm mentally or physically capable of killing another human being. And during the whole day's uh, deliberation, uh, that was the difference, and I was sentenced to six months. Uh, and so I served my time and got booted out of the service with an undesirable discharge and returned to society. And fast forward a couple of years, I'd tried college a couple of times and uh, tried playing basketball again, but uh, I'd had too many strange experiences and, and just felt uh, kind of alienated, actually. And so I, I ended up doing uh, what a lot of young hippies of the time did uh, on a, a a search for identity, I guess you could say. I hitchhiked across the States and then bummed around Europe for a few months and came into contact with a lot of other uh, young hippie types who were backpacking around and uh, mostly Europeans. And I was amazed at the number of artists and musicians and uh, painters that I came across. And, and I was so envious of uh, their ability to speak three or four languages. and. I could barely speak my own native language and they all seemed to have fulfilled lives and exciting lives. And so when my money ran out and I came back to the States and hitchhiked back uh, to the West coast again, I now had a, a kind of target. I, I wanted to become a writer 
And so that's when I first started writing and uh, started out with kind of short dashes, short stories and over four years or so of working different labor jobs and working mainly as a cook uh, and saving my money. I, I ended up uh, four years later returning to Europe and to Paris and uh, was all set to try and write a novel based on all my experiences. So, and so that, so did that was you, really the start. So did you consider yourself a hippie and embrace counterculture, the whole scene? <laughs> yeah, I, I could say like Bill Clinton, uh, I, except I inhaled. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I my hair was pretty long. I had a beard and, uh, you know, I experimented with a lot of the things that everybody else was experimenting with. And, but uh yeah, speaking of hippie, when, when I returned uh, to Europe, I was in Paris, kind of heavily under the influence of Hemingway and the uh, expatriate writers from the 1930s and, and Jack Kerouac, Henry Miller, expatriate writers. And uh, one day coming back uh, from walking on, on the streets of Paris and just, uh, you know, observing life, basically, uh, I came back to my Run down cheap hotel, and there were two men at the front desk uh, trying to convey a message to the desk clerk. And one was an Iranian, and another was an Afghan, and uh, they were trying to give a message to the desk clerk who spoke only French. And so I'd picked up a little bit of French by then, and I was able to give a crude translation, and uh, the desk clerk seemed to understand. So these two men were just overjoyed and they invited me out for a cup of tea. And so we became friends real quickly and they invited me back to their countries. And so I was ready, you know, <laughs> I'd never been to Iran or Afghanistan before. So I said, okay, it sounds like a good adventure. And we actually, well, I, uh, the, the Afghan traveled back by train, but uh, I ended up going with the Iranian who bought a car in Germany uh, and he could sell it back in Iran, you know, and cover the cost of, of the journey. He, he, and the Afghan were basically selling uh, carpets and other uh, ornaments and jewelry and, and artistic things uh, for inflated prices in, in Europe, and uh, they were making a pretty good living at the time. Anyway, the uh, Iranian and I traveled the old hippie trail uh, through. Uh, well, we started in Germany and we went through uh, Switzerland and the northern part of Italy, then through uh, Bulgaria into Turkey and had quite a few adventures in the high mountains of Turkey where it was still at the end of winter time and it was pretty severe weather conditions and the roads weren't, uh, you know, four lane highways, that's for sure. Uh, we escaped uh, narrowly a couple of times, but we managed to make it into Iran. I spent uh, maybe a couple months there and then another month in Afghanistan and ended up in India. The whole uh, trip took probably about 10 months or so. But when I uh, finally ran out of money and I was able to use the last of my money to get a, a flight, cheap flight out of India and landed back in uh, Los Angeles with 25 cents left to my name <laughs> and, and, and a severe case of reverse culture shock. <laughs> But uh, those were my, my main hippie experiences, yeah. And how did you end up in Japan? Well, yeah, that's, I, I didn't plan it. Uh, that's uh, definitely for sure. But uh, 
those earlier experiences in Europe and then uh, meeting so many really kind people on the road, uh, you know, on my around the world journey. And uh, I, I just had this dream that I, I wanted to live and work and study in, in a foreign country. And originally I thought, well, maybe Spain or, or Greece, someplace in Europe would be great. But I had a friend, a writer who was living in Hawaii and on the island of Maui. And uh, after I returned from India, I spent the next four years basically working on the oil rigs as a cook and ended up in a, a oil refinery uh, can't well not it, it was a construction site that was building an oil refinery in the uh, high desert of Wyoming, a very isolated place. There were about a thousand uh, laborers who were building this oil refinery, and so I ended up uh, getting a job there for about a year. Became the head baker, and there was nothing to do but work. And so uh, we saved up a few thousand dollars, and I'd been writing to this friend of mine. And he had an extra room and he said, well, come on out. Uh, you can come here and, and, and work on a novel or whatever you want to do. And so when I got there, we started talking uh, about his books and whatnot. And he had had more success in Japan than in America. He did okay with sales in, in the States with his books, but uh, they were translated into Japanese and he became very popular in Japan. And so he had been to Japan a couple of times in just had really good experiences. And he knew a couple of people who were working as uh, English conversation teachers. And so he gave me the address of a friend. And so I contacted that friend and he said he could put me up until I got uh, set up. And so I ended up going to Japan on a one-way ticket and maybe about $300 in my pocket. But I, I found a, a job uh, at a conversation school initially. And so, uh, it took a few years, but uh, piece by piece, you know, I was able to work my way up. Um, you didn't know Japanese. You oh, couldn't no. speak Japanese. Yeah. The only thing I knew about Japan at that time was that uh, the United States had fought Japan in World War II. And I remembered reading those uh, G.I. Joe type of comic books, you know, from the 1950s that had all mm -hmm. these caricatures of the Japanese with the soldiers with the thick glasses and the you know, razor heads and and that was basically my image of, of Japan and once I arrived in Japan I was completely fascinated by just the the kanji lettering everywhere you know, there's at that time not so much English all the billboards everything and and I landed in Osaka so there's a lot of people there being a country boy it was quite overwhelming to the senses of just people sounds noise smells everything but it was fascinating, just fascinating. And uh, I still still enjoy it. <laughs> you you uh, got your degree from college in Japan. Uh, yeah. It, and went yeah. on to become a professor and a professor emeritus. Yeah, that was quite uh, a long story, too. I, <laughs> I could never have dreamed that uh, that type of life would eventually become part of my life. When I landed in Japan, I had very little money and I was basically working illegally, you could say, on a tourist visa. But uh, I was working there and I, I ran into an American who had worked at the same conversation school. 
and had quit the school and started his own school. This was the early 1980s, 1983, and Japan's economy was really starting to boom around then. And there was a, a great demand for English and, uh, you know, even companies were uh, doing a lot of uh, research and development and opening up uh, factories overseas and they needed engineers who could speak English and, and communicate well in English with their factory workers. And so even companies were setting up English courses. And I worked for a few companies. I worked for a couple of conversation skills and was basically in every type of teaching situation that you can imagine from, you know, one-on-one -on -one lessons to teaching five-year-old kids, uh, uh, in groups of 20 to 30 and even conducting seminars with a hundred people or so. And, and so, uh, I ended up meeting my wife, a Japanese woman and, and committed myself to becoming a, you know, permanent expatriate. And I got a, a sponsor for my visa and, um, conversation teaching is not a real stable, uh, type of job. And, so I, I thought, well, if I could get a degree, a master's degree, uh, perhaps I can catch on with a university or, or a junior college. And uh, so I found an American correspondence course. And this is way before the internet. So we, I, it was a true correspondence course, you know, with the old letters with the stamps on them. And it took uh, seven years to uh, complete the course in, uh, education with a, a specialty in the teaching of English as a foreign language. And uh, when I got my bachelor's degree, uh, I was able to find a job at a vocational school that specialized in English education. And they, the graduates would go on to work in hotels and, and travel agencies and uh, putting their English skills to practical use. Uh, but the salary wasn't really so good and benefits were basically non-existent. But once I got the master's degree, which ended up taking about seven years from the time I started uh, working full time and studying at night, in addition to Japanese studies, uh, I worked a bunch of different part-time jobs. And one of the part-time jobs I found was at a women's junior college uh, teaching once a week. And just fate just once again intervened uh, in my favor. And just as I was getting the master's degree, uh, an open opening came up for a foreign full-time foreign uh, instructor. I applied and had to compete with about 50 other people. But fortunately, uh, the final uh, step was an interview in Japanese, and I was able to pass that where my competitors uh, kind of panicked, I guess, and their Japanese wasn't so fluent. And uh, I was hired. And so because I could speak some Japanese, you know, or enough to do my job, I could participate in meetings and be a member of committees and do things like uh, go out to high schools to recruit students and things like that. So uh, my first full-time job started when I was 41 years old and uh, started paying into a, a pension fund and boom, you know, 25 years go by pretty fast and I was suddenly 65 and time to retire and <laughs> here we are seven years later. So you're retired now from teaching? Yeah, yeah. Do you ever look back and regret your original decision not to fight in the Vietnam War? 
no, no, no. That was the best decision I ever made in my life, I think. And uh, there were a lot of people who disagreed with me, of course. And, and uh, you know, you just have to deal with the criticism. And, and uh, I was lucky enough, I, I, I suppose, yeah, to kind of segue into talking about my, my book and my relationship with my mother, I, I think I inherited a lot of her stubbornness. <laughs> and she was a very strong, independent uh, woman who uh, was uh, always supportive, uh, always uh, you know, went out of the way. And, and, you know, I caused a lot of grief for a lot of people, but she was always right there, you know, holding me up and supporting me. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I've never thought twice about it. I, I've always been one who... You know, whenever you come through to a fork in the road somewhere, you know, it's, it's like Yogi Berra said, if you come to a fork in the road, take it <laughs> and don't look back. Um, so the book is a tribute to your mother and your relationship yeah. with her. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she died. Let's, re uh, let's repeat the title for everybody. The good Lord willing and the creek don't rise, Pentimento memories of mom and me. Yeah, it's a fairly long title. And uh, to explain the title a little bit, uh, the first part, the good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Uh, my mother used to say that all, all the time, and she picked it up from her grandmother. And uh, whenever she was facing some tough situation or her kids were in dire straits of some sort, uh, she would always tell us, you know, don't worry, it'll all turn out okay. And then the good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. You know, and then we'd all have a nice little giggle after that. And uh, so she was a very optimistic person. And I thought, well, that phrase, you know, kind of uh, describes her attitude towards life as well as, as anything. Just uh Keep your head up and good things will happen as long as the, the good Lord is willing and the creek don't rise. Then the pentimental memories of mom and me. I always liked uh, the writer uh, Lillian Hellman, uh, who was Dashiell Hammett's uh, lover. I don't think they ever got married, but uh, they had a relationship for maybe 30 years or so. And during the, th the, the 30s, 40s and 1950s, and she was part of the the Hollywood group that was blacklisted and had to face the House Un-American Activities Committee. And, uh, you know, she was just a very strong, independent woman herself and, and very liberal. And uh, in, in the 1960s, she wrote uh, three memoirs and, and uh, the title of one was, was Pentimento. And she used that uh, phrase, which is a phrase used in, in uh, or a term used in uh, art, in, to describe when a painter paints a certain scene, a kind of rough draft of something, and then changes his or her mind, repents, so to speak, and then paints over that, and a completely new scene develops. And Lillian Hellman used this term as a kind of metaphor uh, for memory. So as, as we age and we think back on our earlier experiences, uh, those scenes from our earlier life change from time to time. And so 
after my mom died a couple of years ago, just short of her 95th birthday, I, I had all this correspondent from correspondence from years and years of letters and emails and actually I recorded some of her stories about uh, family uh, growing up in the 1930s uh, they lived a life similar to the Jodes in, in the grapes of wrath only for her family instead of Oklahoma to Southern California they started in North Dakota and ended up settling in Washington and Oregon on the Columbia River and uh, so all those earlier memories came flooding back to me when I was going through all the earlier letters and even the, the recorded audio tapes that we had, a few videos as well. And it seems like my memories of her changed several times. And uh, so I thought, hmm, pentimento would be a wonderful expression to use there too. Yeah, so well, it, it's a tribute to her and uh, the, the way she was such a positive influence on my life to her, her, her grit, her, her determination. She, in a time when it was very difficult for a woman to be uh, financially independent, uh, she was able to forge ahead even after her divorce. Uh, she was always working, even cleaning uh, rooms, uh, doing people's laundry, doing whatever it took to raise uh, her kids until she got married a second time. She was Catholic, and so when she married a second time, she was excommunicated from the Catholic Church, and that had a, uh, a strong you know, emotional uh, uh, effect on her. But she overcame that, and then at uh, some point, her second husband uh, did a lot of gambling and got into debt with thousands of dollars and so she divorced a second time and she paid back all those gambling debts herself and in her 50s she took night classes to become qualified as a legal secretary and she ended up becoming a legal secretary and worked until she was maybe 58 years old and retired with a, a nice little pension for herself uh, she even in her 40s, got a private pilot's license and for two years worked as a fire spotter for the forestry service in the Lake Tahoe area. And so she she was very adventurous. She came to Japan about eight different times. We ended up taking a trip to Ireland one time to sort of search for her family roots. She was a Murphy. Her father's ancestors were from Ireland and we ended up meeting maybe about six or seven distant cousins and just had a wonderful magical time in Ireland. And so when I think back on, on her and, and the life she led and the influence she had on me, and I, I just feel really blessed that this was my, not only my mother, but my best friend. <laughs> she sounds like quite a woman. Yeah. Um, I, I was reading over some of the reviews of your book. Uh, One stuck with me, Tom Nichols, journalist and author, said about your book, and I quote, Norris's story should be must-reading for today's students who think that the 60s was all about Woodstock and high times. What do you think about that remark and your story and today's kids? Well, I, I'm flattered that you know he would think that my little you know book would be must reading you know uh for historical purposes uh, 
certainly a lot of time has elapsed since you know the vietnam war and we've experienced that and, and i've uh, often wondered you know how is the vietnam war being taught in, in american schools particularly junior high school and high schools and uh you know if you go online to search for this kind of information there are a lot of books a lot of people have been writing memoirs you know that cover the whole gamut from soldiers who you know fought in vietnam to, to those who uh came back with uh, ptsd and and you know the the born on the fourth of july type of fellows who, who became very strongly anti-war and uh you know all part of the baby boomer generation and most of us are now in our 70s or 80s and so there's quite a distance from the vietnam war and we've had so many wars in between and and every time it just you know it saddens me deeply that you know mankind never seems to learn look at what's happening today i mean what a horrible time to be young and i i do gain some uh hope uh in the form of I've, I've read where a lot of Russian young men and uh, even a few Ukrainians and uh, Israelis have refused to fight and have become conscientious objectors themselves. And I, I just wonder, my God, the penalties they face are, are unimaginable compared to those that my generation faced. And you know, conscientious objectors in the First World War were severely disciplined, and, and a lot of them died in prison. And then the, in the Second World War, it was the situation was slightly better. You know, a lot of them performed alternative service in the uh, uh, the CCC camps and, and whatnot. And by the time the Vietnam War came around, and especially my particular generation, you know, they had the Supreme Court had ruled that. Uh, not only could conscientious objectors uh, be qualified uh, in the religious sense, but also if they were sincere in their philosophical and moral beliefs and behavior, then a certain number were, were recognized. So the situation you know, seemingly had improved in America, but in other countries, uh, you know, they probably just take them in the back you know, yard and shoot them. And, and so, I can't imagine the courage that it takes for young people from some of these other countries to to do the same thing. As far as young people studying about history, I don't have any direct experience that uh, you know is that their image really of you know where, was it just all smoking pot and, and listening to rock and roll music and going to places like Woodstock and uh, much of the hippie generation imagery in the, the mass media, the movies and whatnot is kind of a caricature, it seems like to me, <laughs> but uh, I haven't really had any direct experience, so I can't really say. My only uh, direct experience is with my own students here in Japan. And uh, for several years, I was responsible for teaching a, a class called uh, American Culture and Society, which I had to teach in Japanese, but I often covered uh, the 1960s and 1970s and and I used a lot of uh, the anti-war songs that uh, came out of those times and and this was during the Iraq war too and so there was a certain number of songs that came out 
uh, with pretty strong lyrics uh, protesting the war during uh, you know 2004 2005 in Iraq and uh, my Japanese kids and, and some international students from uh, China and uh, Taiwan and uh, the Philippines, Korea, they responded uh, really favorably and they were, we had some really good, serious discussions. And so if I can extrapolate from their experience to how young people in America are responding to the current situation, uh, you can see the thousands and thousands of people that are out there in the streets, you know, demonstrating now. And so uh, I have a lot of hope for the young people. You know, that, that's the nature of young people is to <laughs> protest, dissent, rebel against what the older nation, you know, it, it comes back down to, it's the old men who, who make the wars, but it's the young men and women who have to go fight the wars. And that's just not fair. Yeah, I, everybody uh, feels that. I have four grandchildren and who were all about late teens, early 20s that I worry about. Uh, yeah. My Do experience. You think that, hmm? Oh, I was going to ask you, you know, is there any discussion in the states these days about uh, bringing back the draft? Have I haven't heard, heard about that. Yeah. I haven't heard That's what any. I worry about because I've read a few articles where uh, during the last few years, you know, the all volunteer uh, armed services, uh, they're not meeting their recruiting uh, targets. And so, I mean, it wouldn't take much for Congress to reinstate the draft. And that's what I worry about. My experience was I was I was in. In what was called pre Vietnam era. Uh. 62, 63, I was given the choice of volunteering as a dentist, uh, a retired dentist, or waiting until I set up my office and being drafted. So the uh, industry, (laughs) I no, I chose, uh, yeah, I think I better volunteer. (laughs) It might end up being a shorter period of time. And then we ended up, uh, my wife and I, uh, going to Vietnam about a dozen years ago. Oh. oh. Uh, and uh, going through the Coochie Tunnels and uh, as tourists. Wow. Wow. Uh, Vietnam still calls it the American War. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Did we miss anything? This was fascinating. Mm, I can't really think of much, you know, we could always have another conversation anytime, (laughs) (laughs) maybe on lighter subjects. (laughs) Uh, Anything would be lighter, but your life story is just fascinating as hell. Yeah, I've been a a lucky man, a lucky man. (laughs) So thank you. you. Huh? Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say uh, I've been such a lucky man, and, and I think a lot of that started uh, from that first journey I took uh, across the states into Europe. You know, I, I just kind of gave up uh, my fate to the winds, uh, and whatever came, I, I was ready to accept it. And once I, I changed that uh, attitude, uh, nothing but good has come to me over the years. You know, and so fear of the unknown. Uh, 
is is a normal thing, but I think I threw that out the window <laughs> and I've been very, very lucky. What you did takes a lot of courage. Uh, well, thank you. Just, just letting fate determine what was going to happen next. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine a life like that. Yeah. So yeah. thank well, you read for the book. sharing. <laughs> hmm? Thank I'm you. Sorry. Read, read the book. <laughs> But uh, thank you for having me on, Larry. It's been and a pleasure. Thanks for sharing. This. Yeah, thank you. Three men, three stories. You've been listening to specifically for seniors. If you found this podcast interesting, fun, or helpful, tell your friends and family and click on the follow or subscribe button. We'll let you know when new episodes are available. You've been listening to Specifically for Seniors. We'll talk more next time. Stay connected.